hello, or should I say bonjour, and welcome to another episode of Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet that has the freaking cojones, the balls, the stones to do the impossible and discuss cinema, one of the greatest art forms that's ever been invented by man or beast alike. My name is Alexi Choliopoulos, and joining me for the first time in the miniseries, they were destined to come back into the fold on Total Reboot with us. It is Blake Howard. Bonjour. Comment allez-vous? It's lovely to be here uh, talking to you about heist films. I've been a keen listener uh, and I've been dying to to jump on the show. I feel like I've been uh, interacting in my car as I listen to you guys <laughs> as I'm driving or on the train. People get disturbed, um, but I'm excited to be here finally. Uh, I feel like I've been truly uh, the man that we could call Gian Maria Volante or Vogel in this movie. I've been in the boot Mm -hmm. listening along to every episode that you and Cam have been driving, you and Elaine Delon, Cam up the front, and I've just been waiting for my opportunity to burst out of the boot and say, bitch, I'm here, I'm excited. Yeah, let's get get aroused by Jean-Pierre Melville together. Well, the bitch is here, as she just (laughs) said. Cameron is away at the moment, so Blake is putting on his trusty rugby shirt in Cameron's stead to join us. And you're such a heist expert, so it felt that we need to close this miniseries with you. We've got you this week to discuss uh, with me, Le Circle Rouge by Jean-Pierre Melville, one of my favourite movies of all time, maybe my favourite heist movie. And then next week, if things all go according to plan... And in the highest movie genre, sometimes that's it not doesn't the case. actually go on to plan. Correct. <laughs> but you will be hopefully sticking around with us to talk about your favorite movie of all time. We're getting you out of heat retirement for one last job. One last to job. talk about Michael Mann's heat. Um, but because we're talking about heist movies, this is your area of expertise, your little niche of knowledge. Uh one thing that Cameron and I have like been talking about is we love the heist movie genre because mm. of all of the bells and whistles of all of the kind of cliches of the genre, the way that it sets things up, its kind of use of exposition, the way of building teams together, seeing a plan come together and a plan fall apart. And it's like one of those genres where the cliches and the tropes of the genre are such an essential part of it. Yes. We've been trying to go a bit deeper and figure out why we come back to this genre so often, why so many of our favorite films and films that we have emotional connections to come from this genre. So far, my theory has been this idea of like emotional catharsis and social justice. What do you think the kind of philosophy behind heist films are and why we love them so much i think it's and this is a like a a strange way to start talking about it but the way that i'd sort of pitch it to just anyone if we were just having a chat is how many times in your life have you had that conversation with your friends what would it have been like if i win the lottery i talk about it all the time in fact blake you got me to start (laughs) buying lottery tickets last year during lockdown And I actually be buying them every now and then. Whenever the whenever get the take gets too big, Alexis got to freaking put his hand in the ring and get a shot too. You're on, you know. Like you know, if someone can just snatch that number out of the air and it's about thirteen point one, thirteen point two million plus, you got to get a (laughs) ticket. But that's Mm -hmm. what I think that heist films really grab onto. It's like the idea that you've been given a lottery ticket that you know is going to win, and that idea of like wish fulfillment is something so deep in the heist. So in some respects we, and I think in the very best heist movies, 
you actually want the person performing the heist to win. You want them to yeah. get away. You want that wish fulfillment and the effectiveness of a movie to get you and to really tie you into the emotional, I guess, the emotional pathos of everything that those characters are doing to fulfill their wish. And it, usually it does have some form of social justice involved. That and, and, and escaping your station, and I think that sort of underdog thing that we, you know, especially in Australia, we collectively love. I think that that's what it is. It's this, like, wish fulfillment. And also... In so much of our lives, there are systems that sort of like unconsciously oppress us. And so when mm. people stick it to those systems, uh, especially as the systems become so overwhelming and monolithic that they can never be overcome. You know, one of my favorite lines, and we'll probably talk about it next week, is like, we're here for, you, we're, we're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your money is insured by the federal government. Like, I, even though you're being terrified and I may have just beaten up one of your colleagues with an assault rifle, I'm taking someone else's money. It's not your money. It's going to be insured. And so I feel like that's what it is. I think you're so right about justice. I think you're so right about that emotional resonance. But I think it's about it's about the gambler in all of us is that wish fulfillment and that gamble that you are backing something that you've got a hot tip on. And the question that comes in all great heist movies is who else got that tip and what are they going to do to get it in front of you? And so that's where that inherent, I guess, uh, wrestle and struggle comes with of like, there is always forces that are going to go against you when you have this thing that's too good to be true. Like if you got told that the lottery tickets for the, for a $60 million lotto that you had them and they were a sure thing, you would ask, is it too good to be true? And I think heist movies just, they scratch all those itches for us personally about, is it too good to be true? Can I, can I get out? And then, you know, we'll obviously expand more into Melville and mm. his, his, his view of professionals and then Michael Mann. But I think that that's what it is. It's the gambler, even if it's, even if it's subterranean inside you, that's what heist movies get at. Mm. They get at that. I love the way you put it, especially when you said scratching personal itches. That was my favorite part. <laughs> but I think what you're really hitting at is kind of the uh, eureka moment I had with heist movies re-watching Le Circle Rouge because I'm going in going, well, this one's going to challenge my ideas on justice and social justice uh, that I put forward as a philosophy going ahead because I don't think that's there. But it has all those elements of professionalism and like seeing people that are really good at what they do. And that's such a key element to the heist film. But what I got from it really hit me when you're talking about the idea of gambling, that lottery ticket that's a surefire win if you can get that right ticket. And I think part of what makes the heist movie so, like the kind of vicarious nature of the heist movie is that the prize is always freedom. And yes. I think that is so key here in Le Circle Rouge in that the prize, the ultimate goal is freedom. And I think when we look at all the films we've discovered uh, over this miniseries and heist films in general, I think that catharsis at the end or the hope for the catharsis at the end is our criminals, our robbers, our burglars, whoever we are aligned with during this, uh, this kind of criminal act, their ultimate goal is to get some kind of freedom. And that is what everyone on earth is owed in some way. Yes. Uh, 
or what we feel as humans, that's like our primary goal is to have some kind of freedom to us. And I think that was like such a key moment for me watching this and unlocking that as like a thematic texture to this movie. Um, before we get into it, Blake, over the last couple of years, you and I, you know, we're dear friends in person. We talk about movies even when we're off the freaking clock, dude. <laughs> but Melville has been someone that's come up a lot uh, because, you know, you're the Michael Mann dude. You love heist movies. And I remember during like one of our, you know, discussions during lockdowns, our little hangouts, I remember telling you there's a Melville box set, Blu-ray box set on special. You need to pick it up. I want to hear what your (laughs) thoughts are on Melville. And here we are like two years later getting into it. What can you tell us about like Melville? Do you, you found a quite a strong love for him. Interesting about the man. This is what's so fascinating about him. It's firstly, you know, he's... His personality and like, there's a lot of great documentaries on this feature about him, and they call him like independent and obs- independent mm. to the point of obstinate. You know, he was a real, yeah. he's a real maverick. He does his own thing. He started making films in the French New Wave, and he was one of the only filmmakers who continued to make films like past the peak of the New mm. Wave period at, at, at an up and coming clip. And he was always a genre filmmaker. His original name is not Melville. Yeah, it's he adopted the name because he loves Herman Melville, Melville, the writer of Moby Dick. Yeah, his three favorite authors ever were Faulkner, Edgar Allan Poe, and Herman Melville. And so everyone has always talked about Melville's direct duality as like mm. this deeply French filmmaker making these, you know, kind of American crime genre films and setting them in Paris. But it's not like a one-to-one. It's not like a crappy homage. It's just taking the essence and the energy of those films and transplanting them in France. And I think that at the time, especially in Paris and in Europe, the critical reception wasn't there for him. But he's like one Mm. of those guys that is so ripe for discovery because he makes these kind of timeless almost noirish, very, you know, very sort of stylized and very deliberate genre films that just seem mm. to age like fine wine, like you keep going through. And so he's got Grace Height, you know, Bob Le Flambeau, which is one of his first big, I guess, heist films, is a about a gambler and there's a heist and you don't actually even see the heist take place. You've got Le Samurai, mm. which is, um, I mean, one of the greatest films probably ever made. Oh, man. Um, I've been pushed into do a full mini series on La Samurai and its <laughs> descendants, like Ghost Dog, Drive, The all, Driver, even all of them. Baby Driver, a movie I think stinks ass. <laughs> I I'm gonna beg you not to put Baby Driver in that. You just named like four of the best movies, and then you're like, and Baby Driver, yeah. which not only stinks but also eats very dirty ass. But no, it's uh, so Mel- Melville's the kind of guy, and this is where you know uh, his influence is so strong. He's Mm. a filmmaker who, like, his own personality is a direct dialogue between French and American culture, and his films are a dialogue between French and American culture. And what is so powerful about them is that their influence, kind of like, you know, uh, he's kind of a a proto-Michael Mann in this way, while at the time they might not have been critically acclaimed or financially acclaimed, what happens is... Other filmmakers love them, obsess over them, and then adopt his kind of methods, and then they get riffed on endlessly. So for me, watching Mm. it, it was like that. It was so many, like, aha, like, crazy freak-out moments. It was like the first time I watched Rafifi, another classic heist Mm. film. It's like, oh, my God, there is so much of that energy, so much of that obstinance, so much of that specificity about detail and 
how things operate that it just it kind of blew me away and i think le circle rouge mm. i mean really closely to le samurai both these films i hold in such high esteem as probably yeah. two of the best films i think i've ever seen crime films of all time and le circle rouge is like it's in the conversation for top three heist movies of all time for me yeah he was a big discovery for me over my life i think my mother introduced me to le circle rouge when i was a teenager and then when i went to film school i got deeply into him writing essays on like le samurai and stuff one thing that I really appreciate about Melville that's taken me a while to kind of understand is that he really is this father figure to the French New Wave. He starts out before them in the nineteen late 1940s. And because he's got this filmography steeped in genre, he was kind of like that French filmmaker, your Truffauts and your Goddards, especially during their critic years, really held up because, you know, so much of the French New Wave is based on genre. And he was even there advising Goddard, making Breathless, going, it was his idea to just go, just cut to the cool parts. And that's how the <laughs> jump cut style of the French New Wave was invented because Melville was like, yeah, there's a lot of crap in here. Just get to the good shit, brother. And I think that's the appreciation that I have for him is that. He we need an Alexi drunk. Guy. We need an Alexi drunk history of these famous film stories <laughs> of the where, French New Wave. Of the French New Wave. <laughs> Cut to the cool <laughs> shit, brother. Yeah, and it's just a fucking like <laughs> we got Superwog play freaking Melville in the drunk history. Yeah. But yeah, I just love Melville. This is my favorite of the Melville films. I just adore it so much. It's his second last film, Le Circle Rouge. Let's get into it. Il n'y a pas d'innocents. Les hommes sont coupables. Ils viennent au monde innocents, mais ça ne dure pas. All right, we're going to kick things off with a little segment we love to call Love That Log Line. Blake Howard, somewhere out there on the internet, you found a synopsis for this movie. You're going to read it back to us. We're going to let you know whether we love it, whether we rate it, or maybe perhaps we freaking hate it. I have gone to the trusted source, imdb.com forward slash title forward slash TTO 66531 taglines. <laughs> Whoa, we're in the taglines department. Hell yeah. This, I have had to go to this tagline because as a fan of this segment, I rate it. In fact, this may wow. be personally, and I'm keen to hear what you think, maybe the most Stupid tagline I've ever seen written about a film of all time. Yeah. Here goes. The Red Circle is a powerful in-depth study of the French underworld. Okay. I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think it's an in-depth study. It's not really about the French underworld. It's mm. not an in-depth study. I have no idea who came up with this tagline. They clearly haven't seen the film, and I thought that that is, I mean, really, I mean, if we're talking about loving a logline, Lexi, do you love it, do you rate it, or do you hate it? You know what, brother, I hate it, because I don't <laughs> think it does anything. It doesn't do It's it. just someone saying something. That doesn't mean anything. They're just like, yeah, this is a good movie, and it made me freaking think philosophically about my life. It's like, no, 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 no. no. It's a cool genre picture. And it's an interesting structured film. I think that's what I come back to. I think that's what I find surprising every time I come back to it is because 
because the heist is so climactic and so precise and so beautifully shot and realized, that's usually what my memory goes to for this. But then this is an interesting movie, and it is interesting that it does this thing that I'm already going to give away our first Oscar to because it's my favorite Melvilleism. Uh, that Melville just creates these profound proverbs. He invents them as if they're from <laughs> some Eastern philosophy. Le Samurai begins with the code of samurai. That's just some shit that he made up. And this movie begins with like a Buddhist quote about the red circle that he has just invented out of nowhere because it suits this and it suits having this kind of exotic philosophy put onto it full of like, you know, these kind of like Eastern mystical philosophies, which is just Buddha saying, all men will meet in the red circle, as if the red circle is destiny, the red circle is death, the red circle is life and where we meet. And this movie is all about that kind of interesting way of fate of these people meeting each other. We've got three criminals or three people that live in the depths of the underworld of France if you want to go back to that tagline <laughs> one of them played by one of them played by Alain Delon who is someone who has just gotten out of prison and is keen to find this heist which is this amazing jewelry store in Paris that no one has been able to get into and while he's like getting ready for it he sees this kind of police blockade out in the countryside and he puts it in his head that they must be trying to get a really cool criminal cut to <laughs> Jean-Maria Volante who has broken out of being escorted by like a basically a high-ranking police officer a high-ranking detective um who has who he has been handcuffed to they're on a train he gets out of the handcuff and leaps out of the window of a moving it's, train it's and is on the run in a forest badass escape yeah Ma uh L'Assistant de Matai, who's played by Jean-Pierre Pozier, is the kind of big dog detective in this. And and by and and by this escort, he's got this badass Vogel. And the whole film, whether it's the structure of how it's playing out, whether it's the trains, whether it's the cars moving, whether it's the way that they tinker with the score, like the momentum is that these guys are going to collide at some point. And you feel like it's going to be Matai and Corey, which is Elaine Delon's character, but it ends up being Vogel, who's Jean-Marie Volante. And so they, they get together and just because Corey doesn't give him up to the cops, they're like, let's work together. And so they start mm. to plan the heist. And I don't think you're wrong saying the heist is a centerpiece, right? It's like 25 minutes of yeah. gloriously, you know, meticulously put together stuff. But at the same time, Matai is like racing around the city and uh, Alain Delon's ex uh, like boss and, and partner that's been working on the outside is sleeping with his lady. And so they're kind of hunting him down. And so they become the things that are trying to disrupt this heist. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it's pure genre stuff. It's a gang of mm. misfits that are thrusted together and they're like, all right, let's take the opportunity while we're both just out of jail to do this awesome heist. It's awesome. Let's talk about our three primary leads. We've got Alain Delon who is... He is kind of like the centerpiece of Melville's collaborators because he's this very cool, stoic, poetic kind of character. And his entire presence on the screen is like his kind of cutthroat professionalism, his quietness, and these like very steely blue 
crystallized eyes that I find just so I find him so fascinating because he is someone that is so built on presence and the character are the characters are developed through his presence and the way that he kind of sits in this interesting genre like way and I find him to be like just this perfect kind of like catalyst in this movie for getting everything to build together. And I think he stands in such contrast to our other two leads, which are Vogel played by Jean-Marie Volonté and Is Montand as Jansen or Hansen or Jansen. I actually don't know because <laughs> I've only ever seen this movie with subtitles. Um, but I love that Yves Montand performance as well. And Yves Montand is basically the French Frank Sinatra. He yes. even had an affair with Marilyn Monroe to, to, to line up that analogy perfectly. But he is the coolest guy, this great singer, and he is cast in this alcoholic ex-cop role who gets brought in because he's the crack shot of all crack shots. He's like Robin Hood, basically, with a gun. And the way that he is introduced he's this alcoholic loser kind of seen as like a Hemingway-esque character where he's scraggly bearded and I love what you said about Melville one of his influences being Edgar Allan Poe because this is one moment of surrealism in this movie where we see him hallucinating all these bugs and snakes and lizards and rats and spiders climbing all over his body and like tearing him apart as he's going through like these alcohol withdrawals. It's a transformation like in just a couple of minutes because he looks like this guy who is absolutely at his utter depths and there's no way that he could do it. And then he's entrusted with being the crack shot. And you're like, this cannot... It's a great like tension builder and a great just a little, little bit of business to give us a backstory and give us some stakes to this guy. He's not just going to be this certain crack shot who's going to do it. He's dragging himself out of a gutter and experiencing these withdrawals and trying to get his life back on track with his heist, just like our other two guys have escaped prison because his prison is his alcoholism. His prison is his addiction. And so it's a really phenomenal thing. And 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 credit to um, Yves Montan is because he looks like a bag of shit when we first meet him. Like he's mm. absolutely awful. And then he's like suave, cool, like comes out, mm. looks really, really charming and like, like he's got it together. And then even there's a great touch later in the film is like when they get into the heist and, the, and things start going well, he just has a whiff. It's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. He has a mm. whiff of his hip flask just to be like, oh, this might be my reward after I get all of this done, after I do my work. You know, it's a, it's, it's a guy who's mm. still wrestling with his demons, even though, um, you know, even though he kind of gets himself right for this one job. That transformation that he makes when he gets himself right is probably my favorite extended sequence because it is the lead up to the heist. The yes. moment we see the planning begin to take place where they dress up Ismontand to be a bourgeois with this umbrella, with this briefcase, with these like beautiful, big, thick spectacles <laughs> and slicked back hair where he is the person to first infiltrate the world of the jewelry store that they are planning to rob, yes. which is high security in a tall building behind this like big, uh, this big, big kind of safe door the whole shop is behind it and we get an introduction to the store for the first time where we kind of see inside that world and i just love the elegance of him clocking all the cameras and taking note of like every bit of security and all the new security that elements to it like the 
those uh, invisible eyes, which we know from like entrapment and stuff, <laughs> where it's those laser beams. But here they're just like you see the lights of like where they are. And I think it is just a superb moment of characterization where we see him enter a different world than he ever has before and him kind of like taking on the characteristics of the bourgeoisie and like how to embody them because it's when we get that glint of what this heist will be but more so what the life beyond this heist could be what they are going to be getting what they what the take will be and it is that sense of freedom where we see them that hope for what they'll have uh because they're all like you said, breaking out of some kind of prison. If it's not literal, it is one that they are encased in. And the only way they can live a life of freedom is to get the biggest take that they've ever had, to break through this huge, to be the first ones to break into this incredible jewelry store and take all of this away. And it feels so powerful. And I think Yves Montan's evolution of that character really hits me. And it's actually something that John Woo has written about in this yeah. short essay he wrote about this film. The director of like Hard Boiled Face Off, some of the best movies of all time. He talks about the Yves Montan's character, his like heroic moment, where one of the reasons he's brought in is because someone needs to shoot through this barricade, these like brass bars and shoot a bullet that is custom down this like keyhole to delay all the electric systems so the alarms don't go off. And he sets up beautifully on this tripod-like thing, his gun, he aims it perfectly during, with the scope. All he needs to do is pull the trigger. At that last moment, what does he do? He takes the gun off the tripod, doesn't use the trigger, and with confidence shoots and lands the hit perfectly. It's, it's another, like, I mean, people talk about this movie being silent and not having a lot of like, you know, not, not having a lot of yammering at each moment where the characters have to say what the emotions are going to have. And that's why it's so heroic is because you have these moments where we want him to use that damn tripod. We've seen him come out of this like prison that he's built for himself with his addiction. We've seen him just like barely getting it together. We've seen how good his performative like, you know, mode is when he's coming through. And that's just another thing of like, oh my God, this has been planned to perfection. This is this one thing that's so key. And it's like, please don't take it off the tripod. Don't do that. Don't give us another potential error that is going to come up in this heist that has to be executed to perfection. And that's what you love. It's just that moment where, no, I've got the confidence. I'm a pro. I'm going to do it. And it's just like this beautiful like note of height and drama in the depth of a heist where you remember everything that's happened with that character. And you're like, this is just a guy who is such a master like Melville. It's just like, everything could be wordless. This could totally be a silent film in many respects. And that thing, the, just the emotional heights of like, oh my God, he's taking it off. Is he still going to make the shot? Just... It's just sublime. Like, you know, you can see so many people learn from that moment. And there's no surprise with John Woo. Like, he's a guy who loves these big, you know, operatic, you know, things where mm. people aren't really talking. It's all about movement and motion. And that, like, the motivation of that motion and everything that it ties back to and echoes immediately. And you, like, have this, like, traumatic flashback of how, you know, how, how low he was at the beginning of the movie. When he's in that moment, he just does that kill shot straight in gets them into this and it's uh it's it's that 
it's just oh, it just hums. It's just so perfect. Mm. And I hate when movies say shit that they can convey better. And I think that you know Jean Pierre Melville is a guy that. He just, every moment that he can convey something visually and allow a character to just be projected upon by the audience, he does it. And this is just like an exultant moment. And it's in almost dead quiet. And it's not, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like harp on it. It's just perfect. It's just perfectly executed. Mm. Let's talk a bit about the aesthetic of this film because I love what you're saying about movement and visual storytelling. And this film has like this beautiful kind of crisp wintry aesthetic where it feels kind of like unconscionably cold out there in the forest where some of this movie takes place. And even in the cityscapes, this movie feels quite like that damp, wet, cold of winter that feels inescapable. And I think that is such this beautiful aesthetic, this blue, wintry aesthetic that lays itself over this film. I think that is kind of so much in that idea of like the oppression of this movie, like the idea that these people are trapped in this life of crime. And I think there's so much in that life cycle of crime that is inescapable. There's no way to go straight in this world. Maybe that logline is good because it's kind of like this in-depth study on the underworld of Paris and France where we do. You've come around on the logline. I haven't come around. uh, You've come around. Um, this but, guy's a genius, I reckon, <laughs> this IMDb user. But, you know, I, I always ask, like, what is that color trying to do? And I think that's a really important mm. question. You know, when we're talking about colors and aesthetics, I think, you know, sometimes it's like when you think of when a movie is like white and it's like blinding white, what do you think about snow, cold? You know, when things are green, you're thinking about vibrance, life. When things are yellow, you're thinking about decay. And I think when you think about the blue grays that Melville like champions in his, his later films, it, like it, it is not. It could not be more pronounced at what he's trying to say than the first moment we meet Alan, Delane, um, uh, Alan Delon's Corey. The whole movie looks like a prison cell, the entire thing. Mm. And the only shining, brief, glimmering moment of the movie that doesn't feel like a prison cell is when they're in that Montbasson jewelry store getting millions and millions of francs worth of uh, jewels to go off and sell. That's the only moment that doesn't feel like you're oppressed. Like, even when... Um, uh, even when Vogel and Corey, so uh, Jean-Marie Volante and Delon meet for the first time, the meeting on this cold, dead side of the road, there's mud at their feet. They're both wearing trench coats. Like everything has this oppressive gray over it. The woods feel cold. The greens are, you know, the greens feel sapped and and, and Mm. sallow. And then all all the trees feel like, you know, that kind of wintry, you know, uh, contraction. But yeah, it feels like a prison cell. So that for me is special. And when you talk about also just the deliberate nature, right? There's 25 minutes of this heist movie. Like you know, people who know me know I like to get specific on the detail of minutes. But there's you 25 love those freaking minutes. I love with the minute man, of course. <laughs> That's exactly what my wife calls me. But um, so the uh, 25 <laughs> minutes, 31 shots. Um, which is I know your personal record, and so. <laughs> so 25 minutes, 31 shots. <laughs> Is what Melville uses to to execute and build mm. this, and and what you get is just it almost is like obviously it's a lie because it's not exactly real time, but it gives you the feeling that this is real time, and even the before and the afters mm. and the discussions, everything is happening at this very deliberate sort of glacial real life pace, and instead of it being too slow, it's this kind of weird thing that. Alan Pakula used to say when he when he directed all the President's Men was 
they d- did it with this very steady, deliberate pace. And when they tried to speed it up with editing, as you normally would to reduce the running time, the movie felt longer than if you let it mm. play. And I think Melville has this unconscious ability to go, no, we're going to let it play. I want the staging. I want it slow. I want it to be like it's real. I want to be feeling like I'm in these spaces. And so it just becomes by the end of it, it's just this absolutely thrilling thing. So when that security guard is thrashing about on his bed and like trying to press the alarm, it, it, it is, you've built up to this, you know, this crescendo of like, oh my God, this is, this is just utter perfection. Like they are going to get out of here, but the cops are going to be hot on their tail. Um, and, and you're going to see Borville's uh, Matai. He's going to, you know, he's going to come after them big time. Yeah, there's something about that Matai character, the Borville, the cop that is after them. It's something we've not really talked too much about in this miniseries. When we kind of think about the genre of crime feels, there, there is the kind of most base version of crime film genre is the cat and mouse of it all. The cops and the... the the criminals and the cops that are chasing them, the cops that are after them. It's the idea of the rags to riches or more so the comeuppance that is the actual prize for crime. And I think that's something we've not really talked about because in the crime films that we've discussed, in the high films that we've discussed in this miniseries, it's been mostly just from the perspective of the criminals dog day afternoon's a little bit different because yeah. it's just that one moment and it's not really a cat and mouse it is just like the exact moment of the clash between the cat and the mouse and this is definitely the first one where we are really looking at a kind of like even cut of some kind between like the cop and the criminal what do you think about that lead investigator what do you think his motivations are beyond like it's his job or is it that melville concept of these are all professionals at play they are all playing their professional part to the executive level that they do yeah i think i think melville pioneered this like that borville matai character is like he's he's smashing the metaphor so hard minute one like this guy's a pro Especially when he, like, for, there's a moment there when he loses Vogel and he jumps out the window and you're like, oh my God, that's a badass exit. And he goes after him, starts shooting at him. But the moment that he sets up all the roadblocks, he starts doing it, you realize this guy's a pro. And when he goes home, he does something that, you know, you know, and, and I, what my, we're going to be talking about my favorite movie together hopefully soon, but he does something that other movies have to articulate, which is like, this guy goes home and he has cats. He does not have a family. He has his existence, his entire existence, in fact. His home looks, it looks like an Ikea furniture layout. Like it's not, it doesn't even feel real. It, you go in, it doesn't feel touched. It doesn't feel lived in because he doesn't live there. He lives on the trail of crooks. He lives in train carriages, like escorting pr- dangerous prisoners. Like that is the, me- like... And the metaphor of cat and mouse, like this guy is hanging around with cats. He's like literally the cat is Mm. hanging around with cats. Like he's just ramming home that metaphor and he's making, he's staging this space that feels the least lived in of any place in there. And it's that great line, you know, from John Voight uh, in Heat as Nate. He's like, he's talking to Neil McCauley, Robert De Niro's character. He goes three marriages. Uh, You know, this guy's got three marriages. You think that means he likes going home? And that's the exact thing that I think mm. Matai's, uh, Borville's Matai is all about in this movie. He doesn't like going home. His home is not, it's, it's just a, it's just an artificiality. It's just the thing that he needs to do, but he's in his true heightened state. And even he doesn't feel satisfied at the climax of the movie, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, but there's no satisfaction for him unless he's in pursuit. And I think that that's what mm. 
that is the greatest lesson from Le Cercle Rouge like that that is sort of carried through is that if you are going to have these two equally competing forces in your movie and and I, if you're going to realize them you you kind of have to have that they they match each other's ethos because you know with Delon as soon as he finds out that his missus is gone he wants to get rid of those photographs he doesn't want to look at it anymore and when we see Borville who's his main foe in this there's, he doesn't have that distraction. So I think the whole time Melville is telling us that these other distractions, these other improvisations, this other risk-taking, that is not going to stop Matai. Matai is coming for them, and he feels inevitable from the moment we meet him. Let's get into that climax, the moment where all our lead characters meet in the epigraph mentioned at the top, <laughs> the red circle. I'm going to read you that epigraph because it is Please so do. bizarre and it's so funny. I just love that Melville creates these proverbs like this. The Buddha drew a red circle with a piece of red chalk and said, when men, even unknowingly, are to meet one day, whatever they befall each Whatever the diverging paths on the said day, they will inevitably come together in the red circle. I love it because he adds these superfluous <laughs> words in there to make it sound even more erudite and philosophical. I think it's so playful. And I think that motif of the red circle is so interesting because the only time we ever see someone draw a red circle with chalk is the Corey character, yes. the Alain Delon, when he chalks up a pool cue and he makes a very distinct red circle at the top of it. Um, and before that is moments before we see bloodshed happen where he kills people that are on his tail. And this moment in the climax of the film, it is that moment where all of these men meet in the red circle. Not literally, there's no red chalk circle here. <laughs> but... I think it kind of speaks to the destiny of this movie because of this cold, chilly, wintry aesthetic, the idea of this heist being a way to break from uh, a metaphorical prison so that we, they can attain freedom. Uh, it always feels uh, to be in pursuit of nothing. This is a pursuit of a dream that will not come true. This is a film that you always know there's no way out for these guys. It's not a film full of hope. And I think that's kind of like what the legacy of this film is. The, I rewatched this movie back in 2019 because I watched The Irishman, one of my favorite movies of the last decade. And it didn't feel like Scorsese's other films, but it felt so much like this film. That's the movie that I felt like Scorsese was kind of playing to. The song that he was like embodying through his is that cold, wintry feeling of the end of one's life that is full of regret and full of nothing else. And I think that is such an interesting take for these crime films to have because this is not a film about like the glitz and glamour, the riches and the rewards of crime. This is a film about the lone lifestyle of crime and these three men have just met and the only three people in each other's lives and it's at the end of their lives where they have like this idea of honor and friendship and sticking together and looking after each other and it is that kind of honor among thieves where it's like this it is powerful but it is like this empty gesture because it's only honor among thieves there's nothing else beyond it yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to hang out after this. They're not going to be friends after this job. They are together exclusively to do the job, to get rid of the materials that they stole, get some money, and then it's done. And so that, like, but the only thing that means anything to them is the kinship of the job. And even with Matai, who's coming after them, the only thing that matters to him is the job. 
And so it's that great thing where it doesn't have to say any of these things. It's all of us projecting onto it, but it's those things that, that one last job, one last ride. And the fact that it's not ever said that they want to do this and they want to get out, it's just implied and implicated that this is the only means to freedom means that it feels even more, I don't know, it feels even more tragic as we're watching Matai, you know, close in this red circle around them, this noose that is closing this entire time. And it's that one, I don't know, that one piece of instinct that um, uh, that Jean-Marie Volante says, which is like, I'm going to go to this meeting, I'm going to go to this fence. And when he spots who the fence is, which as we get to the climax is Matai, who's, who's you know, assuming a, a fence's identity, then all hell breaks loose and those guys just go on the run and, they, and they're immediately sort of kind of cut down. Mm, the climax is so short and so quick and so definitive. Yes. It is weirdly, I think because you've become so aligned with these criminal characters, even though they are cold, there is a heartbreak to it because oh. you're just like, well, there was no hope for them. And it feels quite sad and quite demoralizing. Yeah, I agree. It, it's... There's two other wonderful, actually, I'll mention three fantastic heist films that have all been either referenced or you guys have danced around them for this series. One is Heist by David Mamet, starring Gene Hackman and Dora Lindo. Another, Logan Lucky, Steven Soderbergh, Channing Tatum film. Um, And another is Spike Lee's Inside Man. And when you look Mm -hmm. at those films, you know, the crooks in Heist get away, but they have to overcome momentous double crosses on every single thing and isolate themselves from this family that they've created of thieves. Like the honor among thieves in the heist crew feels really true. And it feels devastating. Not that they get away devastating that they finally break up. And with Logan Lucky and inside man on the, on the inverse side, you've got the cops being Denzel Washington and you've got Hillary Swank as this FBI agent at the end of Logan Lucky, it's happy. There's justice. Justice has been restored, but she's right there on the fringe. It feels like if the red circle is is the moment where they all meet, like in that bar at the end when she asks for a drink from um, from Adam Driver's character, it's like, oh, the red, like she's there. Like they're all meeting now, and maybe there's trouble, and let's hope they can overcome it in this last moment. And the satisfaction for Denzel Washington's character and Clive Owen in The Inside Man is that the justice is restored, and he's happy to take the lead from the crook. But here, like you said, when they get gunned down, it happens with the efficiency of the heist. Like they just get shot down, bang, 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 the cops march in. And then there's momentum constantly with bodies and people. And as they're running, it just feels like a level of helplessness that is at no other point in the movie. Like even Vogel, when he jumps out that window where you think, oh my God, this is hectic. He's going to die jumping out of this moving train. He he survives. But this moment mm. is just, that's, I think that's what sucks the air out of my lungs when I watch this is, and, 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 and makes the hairs on the back of my neck stick up is as soon as he spots Matai, it doesn't feel like there's ever going to be escape. And I think that that's what Melville is just happy with that fatalism of right now, this is the, this is the, you know, it rains, you get wet. You know, this is the life they've chosen. And it's, it's, I, I think that that's what's truly special about this is that it's so efficient that they're cut down and you, you kind of, I think the impact is us hanging on to that devastation as we watch it. And then, and then again, wanting to watch it again and again because you're like, oh my God, I, that climax is just, I, I have to watch it again because I can't believe that that's how it ends. You know, I have to go back mm. and, and do this, do this journey one more time. Well, it is truly a superb movie, and I think it is one of those great films that are 
interesting access point into the wider world of French cinema, the wider world of international cinema. If you have yet to kind of open those gates and go through, this is a wonderful film to start yourself off with. And I think one of the keys to that is uh, someone that I'm going to give away that Oscar to for best character actor. Uh, because this is a character actor, this is a leading man that I just adore so much because I think that he is right there at the gates to world cinema waiting to let you in with so many of his classic films that feel like those gateway points beyond this one. I'm of course talking about Gian Maria Volante, who is an Italian actor who is extremely present in a lot of these early films for like cinephiles like those early gateway points he is of course the villain two separate characters by the way (laughs) the villain in the first two films of the dollars trilogy the man with no name trilogy the spaghetti westerns of sergio leone he is the villain ramon ramon rojo ramon rojo rojo yeah rojo rojo Ramon Rojo in A Fistful of Dollars and then El Indio in For a Few Dollars More. And I always was fascinated with those two dueling characterizations of these two different villains and how different they are from each other. But I was so struck by the intensity of his performance in those and how outwardly villainous he was. Yeah, he's... I was just going to say... If you have never seen any Melville films or you're not really a Francophile, so you haven't seen much French cinema, like that's another thing that Melville, as a, like a lover of American culture, he loves Westerns. Like Le Cirque Rouge also mm. plays just like a Western, right? Bunch Absolutely. of misfits. And and the the injection of Jean-Marie Volante is like a massive deliberate nod to going, hey, mm. Sergio Leone and I from different perspectives, you know, the spaghetti westerns and and now um, the sort of French crime films are, are looking back and honouring these westerns that we admire so much. And yeah, he's just great. And I, I love him in this because he's kind of unabashedly a bad guy. Like there's no point, mm. even then when he's in this movie, there's no point where you think, oh, he, you know, he's got a redeemable quality. He's good. Because that moment that um, Delon is sort of uh, uh, accosted by like his former you know, his former partner's like henchman. He just gets out of the boot and just shoots him dead in like two seconds and it's all over. Like he has no problem shooting people in the back. He's like completely yeah. fine with it. And so I think that he brings that great kind of like unpredictability and ambiguity to the crew because Delon might feel a little bit more like, oh, he's a bit more philosophical, cool. someone we can relate to, yeah. cool. But yeah, no, the volatility, he's just got these eyes, unpredictable, mm. volatile, like at any moment he's going to hurt someone. I think he's fantastic. And you need a presence like that to go against that young Clint because it doesn't, those mm. movies don't work because Clint's just so tough and, you know, strong and silent. Clint and those, is kind of like Alan Delon, you know, he's got those piercing blue eyes. Yeah. And it is all about the philosophy that you imply onto him as a catalyst. Yes. And I think there's something so interesting in Volante because he is like that live wire presence. Even when he is like underplaying it as he is in this movie, it is like him clashing with Melville in a way. Yes. And I think partly is because like the philosophies are different. Jean Melia Volante is this left wing activist <laughs> and Melville is probably like he's just described himself as an anarchic right-wing person. And I think there's something interesting about the interplay of their two personalities coming together to find something so powerful and so kind of like deeply rewarding. And uh, Jean-Marie Volante, I just want to talk about a couple of his other movies. I also really deeply love his political films like Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. And he uh, also, his final film where he actually died on set was to be one of like my favorite 
movies as a young cinephile, which was Ulysses Gaze by Theo Angelopoulos, which is Harvey Keitel as a filmmaker going back to his native Greece and like discovering like these lost films there. The slowest, most beautifully composed art house movie. Angelopoulos is like the typical idea of what uh like comedy portrays art house films to be and i just absolutely <laughs> love him and he actually died on set and was replaced by elan josephson uh in that role but it's one of those great like what ifs what for if? me it's like oh god what if jean maria volante was in that role in that movie um he's just like such a special presence in cinema and i just absolutely love his films but Blake, we're here at the end of the podcast. We're in our total reboot segment. How the frick would one even go about rebooting a masterpiece, a classic like this for modern audiences? Are there directors in mind? Are there actors in mind? Is there something in the spirit of Le Circle Rouge that you think can be translated to modern day? I think you have to... I think it can't be American. I'm just going to say that mm. right now because American, it feels like there's a a natural impatience to this kind of uh, structured heist movie uh, that's going through. So I, I, I think it can't be an American film, but I can totally, I, I would love like an Alfonso Cuaron like mm. version of this movie, like set it in like Mexico City where people are getting out of prison, set it like a la Roma, like, a de- you know, decades and decades ago and have just an incredible eclectic Spanish like slash Mexican cast that come together to do this thing and just have, you know, I, I think, I think it needs to be anchored in the time. It needs to stay as a period film, but I would love to see it on a, mm. on another, on another level. And alternatively just make it the Western that I think Melville always wanted, like make it an old school Western. Yeah. Um, if I was talking, if I was talking an Aussie filmmaker, let's get, you know, my, one of my favorite films. I know one of your very one, you're very fond of the proposition, get John Hillcoat. Mm. Get me a Le Cirque Cirque Rouge that's made like a grubby Australian Western, right? Like people escaping Mm. trains and going into small towns and then figuring things out and then just that coming together. But I think that it's got... I, I, you know, there are rumors that this movie was attempted to be remade by people like Brian Koppelman. um, So the guys who made Rounders and and who have now gone on to... um, Oh god, I can't imagine that. Like no. I it's just a different meeting of styles to me. Yeah, it's too it's too fast-paced, it's too impatient. This movie has like, a, you know, a 2 hour 20 runtime and it feels like it flies, but it's got a it's got such a patience and I feel yeah. like a Mexico City period set something or like a direct like Aussie Western are the two ways mm. I'd go about it because I think it's got all those elements trains cutting off things roadblocks cops you know playing around with those things people being able to move freely and then having to come back in to do these heists and I think like let, that's they're the only two ways I would go about it what about you Lex? For me, because like this film is its aesthetic and I find it so hard to break away from that, there were two filmmakers in mind that I had that I would love to see tackle something like this and kind of both of them already have in their own ways. But that when I'm thinking about like that chilly aesthetic and this kind of like underworld life, the two filmmakers I was thinking of was Andrew Dominic, who of course of has course. done this in different variations um, in almost every film he's ever made. <laughs> there is some kind of version of this movie in there from Chopper 
to killing them softly. Of course, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, <laughs> but the other filmmaker that I was also thinking of, because I loved their Le Carre adaptation over the last couple of mm. years, um, the little drummer girl, I was thinking Park Chan-wook could Would, be the wow. person to bring this to either a modern day setting or to like a limited series of some kind. And I think the only way to make this American, like you said, uh, is impossible because like that impatience, it would have to be one of those weird American films like Killing Them Softly, like Little Drummer Girl, like Stoker, where it's from uh, uh, where it's from an international filmmaker applying their aesthetic and their patience to an American story. And that's all I could really get into it was just like, yeah, Park Chan-wook would fucking Park Chan-wook. doing a modern he, crime film like this. He could bring that into contemporary South Korea and get his whole band of players to absolutely mm. shred this movie. That's a great shout. That's a really great shout. Blake, it's always so sick having you on the podcast. You've been joining me for a lot of these new release reviews that we've been doing alternately on this podcast feed as well with mm. Maverick. And of course, Ambulance, which is another great heist movie. Banger. Banger this year. Yes. Oh, man, I caught up with it after we, you reviewed it with me, and I just freaking loved it. I think I've become a Michael Bay guy. <laughs> I'm a big... I, I Look, I've been a fan of Bay when he's not playing with Transformers. Um, the Transformers movies really don't resonate, but, man, he does know how to do a heist film, and his great uh, film 13 Hours is another phenomenal ac- mm. contemporary action film. Ambulance, The, the Rock, Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, right? The, That's the, what, the, what the film's called. The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. That's it. Like it's 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 really great. Like I, I rate that so highly as like a contemporary mm. action film. But yeah, no, uh, I, I'm a Bay guy. And Ambulance, I just recently bought the Blu-ray a uh, 4K, so I could check it out again because oh I'm Lord. I'm very excited to check out that 4K Bayhem. So I'm gonna check it out again. That's one. That's like one of my highest rated movies of this year. One of my favorite experiences yeah. of the year is Ambulance. So yeah, that's another great heist movie. Such a it. great surprise. A great heist movie. Such a great surprise. Blake, you've of course got One Heat Minute Productions, which you have done the ultimate and greatest study of the movie Heat. You've even got a new episode out now because you went to go see the new 4K restoration in cinema in New York City, hosted by Bilga Abiri, the great critic, where he interviewed freaking Art Linson. And then I'm going to go higher than Art Linson. Robert De Niro and Al Pacino yes. live on stage. You even met Robert De Niro, you told me. I met Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Art Linson and Jane Rosenthal, the head of the Tribeca Film Festival. Yeah, it was... Lex, it was freaking insane. Like, it was the... We'll have uh, to like, get into it. Well, we'll have to... Like, uh, we'll save it. If yeah. we're going to talk about heat, I'll save it for next time. But suffice to say, there's only one way that I could process it, which is to wholly dissociate from my actual feelings <laughs> because there's no way that a guy who spent literally years of my life studying that film and dedicating my studies to it and dedicating a show to it that when you meet Robert De Niro and he hears about your show and he gives you the De Niro face, like what could I possibly do except levitate and transport into another universe? Like there's no, there's nothing else that I I could have done. So yeah. Um, if you guys want to check that out before, there's a nice breakdown with a couple of the one heat minute family that's over at one heat minute productions, but lots coming up with us as well. So yeah, you know, we, mm-hmm. we can talk more about that next time, but this has just been a treat to talk to you because I love Melville and I love you mm-hmm. for getting me onto Melville because um, yeah, truly such a rewarding filmography that I could just totally go back to again and again. Blake, you're the best dude. I love podcasting with you and you know, hopefully our plan stays on track. Hopefully we don't 
don't have a last minute surprise, but hopefully we will be talking about Heat all together. The triumvirate of Cameron, Alexi, and Blake going in on that classic three-way dynasty, <laughs> as we will with the three of us. A great scene where three legends sit at the table, one of us to pull up an extra chair to sit at the end of it. Uh, but I cannot wait to talk about Heat with you. It's going to be a bit of a dream come true. Um, in the meantime, head over to patreon.com slash totalreboot, sign up for our bonus episodes. And next week on the podcast, we will also be revealing what the next miniseries will be. So Oof. stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, guys, just freaking respect cinema. Chuck on a DVD of some kind, perhaps a foreign language movie, and seep into the powers of the visual art form. 